listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I invite you to stand at this time for the reading of God's Word. We're reading from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 50, beginning in verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. To be or not to be, that is the question. That's the beginning, of course, of probably the most famous monologue uh, in literature. I didn't have it in an English class, but I discovered Hamlet when I was in high school. And by discovered, I mean I found a copy of my mom's old Classics Illustrated of Hamlet, which if you're not familiar, is basically like a comic book or a uh, graphic novel version. But anyway, it was Hamlet. And uh, as a teenager, I was just really, I don't know, that this story just gripped me. Spoiler alert, uh, Hamlet is troubled by a message from the ghost of his dead father who tells him he's been murdered by his own brother, Hamlet's uncle, and Hamlet is supposed to avenge him by killing his uncle, who's now also, by the way, married to his mom. And because it's Shakespeare, everyone dies. Maybe that's the part that attracted me. Now, I, I think it was, the, I don't know, the, the, the drama, the, entering into how Shakespeare pictures the, the turmoil that this young man feels of uh, this, this burden and this calling that's been placed on him and a feeling that nobody understands him and he's all alone and, and he's torn between vengeance and mercy and, and he doesn't know what to do and, and this just this mix of dread and loneliness and uh, this, this burden that's on him and not being able to do anything about it and feeling ill-equipped for what he's supposed to do and not knowing how it's going to turn out. Maybe some of you can relate to some of that uh, in your own lives or what's been going on in the last year or so. 
But of course, the, the part that we remember, the part that grabbed my attention too, was that soliloquy, to be or not to be. What Hamlet is contemplating, is it better to stick around and suffer through all these trials and turmoils or to just not even be anymore? To die, to sleep, perchance to dream, but there's the rub. What dreams may come? Uh, soliloquy is an extended um, monologue. It's an opportunity for the reader or the hearer to enter into the mind of the speaker. And we get to see things that we don't normally, we wouldn't otherwise get to see. We get to see the, the person's motivations, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, what, what they're wanting, what, what they're aiming towards. And today's passage in Isaiah 50 is a soliloquy of the servant king, of the servant who saves. It's a soliloquy of Jesus. And it's important because here we get this insight into who Jesus is and what he's like and what he is about, what he's going to do. And he's showing us then, because he's a servant of the Lord, what any servant of the Lord should look like. He's showing us the life that we should live, but we also see his obedience in the place of our failure and the price that he's paid to rescue us and to help us. So here's the key idea as we look at this passage in Isaiah 50 today. Jesus is faithful to help us. Jesus is faithful to help us. As we head towards Easter, we're focusing on what it took for the Father to rescue and reconcile us to Himself. And remember, we're in this book of Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, and uh, Isaiah is writing to people who are servants of God. Israel is called the servant of God, but they've been faithless servants. And so what will God do in response to that? God will not abandon his people or forget his promise. He, he will redeem them. He will bring about a glorious future of restored justice and peace and wholeness and flourishing. And the way that's going to happen is through the person of this servant. Today, we're looking in Isaiah chapter 50 at a new picture of the servant. If you haven't already gone ahead and and turn to Isaiah 50 in your Bibles. We saw back in chapter 42 how uh, the servant is the one who will bring justice to the oppressed and sight to the blind, and he's gentle and caring and tender. And uh, just this last week on Ash Wednesday, we briefly looked at how God tells the servant, it's too small a thing for you to just rescue my people Israel. You're going to be a savior to the ends of the earth and the way that God will fulfill his promise to bless everyone through his people. And now we're seeing a new aspect of this servant. He is the faithful disciple. He is the faithful disciple of the Lord. And in the ancient world, to be a disciple was uh, something kind of unique and special. It wasn't just being a, a student, although that was part of it. It wasn't just being a servant, although that was part of it. A disciple was someone who followed after a rabbi or a teacher or a mentor and lived with them and listened to them and tried to soak in as much of their life as they could in order to be like that person. 
in order to know what the master knows and do what the master is able to do. I mean, there were stories in the ancient world of how seriously people took this. Uh, some uh, disciples would go to such extreme lengths to, to be around their teachers that they would hide under their beds at night, or they would follow them into the bathroom. And uh, in first hour, I told Pastor Tom, I've learned a lot from him, uh, but there are limits to my commitment. Uh, that's going over the border into a creepy stalker beyond disciple. Uh, But the point was to see everything that the master did, that the teacher did in order to be like him. Uh, So they could reproduce the master's life. And and the servant that we see in this passage is like no other. And he shows us what faithfulness looks like. So uh, first, if you're following along in Isaiah chapter 50, the servant, the servant is taught by the Lord and speaks for the Lord. The servant is taught by the Lord and speaks for the Lord. We see that in verse 4. Did you catch that? The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, literally the tongue of a disciple, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Let's just pause right there. Do you hear the echoes there of Jesus as the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace? that he sustains the weary, he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up those who are wounded and broken, he will not snuff out a flickering candle, but instead spark it into life. It's another reminder of the, the tenderness, the compassion, the love that the Father extends to us through his Son, through the servant. And it raises a question for me, do do people see me that way? Do people see me as someone who is kind and gentle and approachable and tender-hearted? Someone that it's safe to be honest and vulnerable around? Because that's what the servant of the Lord looks like. How does he grow to be this kind of person? Why is he this way? Morning by morning, he, the Lord, awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Again, to hear as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. So God has given this disciple the the ability to hear from him and and a desire to want to meet with him and, and be with him. To be a disciple means to open your ears to the words, the teaching, to open your life to the example of your mentor so that you would reflect what he is like. That is the secret sauce for Jesus. That is his life. Did, did you, if you've ever noticed in the Gospels how saturated Jesus' life is in God's Word, that he's constantly quoting Scripture and alluding to Scripture and referring to Scripture and pointing people to Scripture and treating it as authoritative and true and binding and powerful. Do you not know the Scripture says? He quotes 24 of the Old Testament books at different times. And every crisis in his life, every betrayal, temptation, arrest, beating, all of it, how does Jesus respond? With Scripture. Has God not said? And he submits himself to it. The Lord is the one who speaks into his ear 
morning by morning, day by day. And it's made me take a step back and ask myself over this past year, as schedules have all been turned upside down and we're home more and maybe we even have more time on our hands, who is speaking into my ear? Because what faithfulness looks like is this attractive tenderness. The Lord has instructed me to give me the tongue of a disciple to sustain those who are weary. And I have to confess that over the last year, even with being at home and working from home more and, you know, not being around people as much, it's easy to just turn to the internet, to turn to TV, to turn to celebrity gossip or news or political pundits. And when I do that, what comes out is not usually attractive tenderness. It can be unattractive harshness. And so it raises the question, where am I getting my intake? Where is the input into my life of this word? Because it is this word that instructs, that Jesus depends on, and if he does, how much more us? This repetition of morning by morning, it's saying over and over again, consistently, I'm listening for the Lord. Where is the input into your life of reading God's Word, memorizing God's Word, reflecting on God's Word, so that you are able to speak God's Word? So that when you have a friend who needs counsel, or you're faced with a difficult decision, or you're in a crisis, or a trial, or you're just trying to live your daily life, it doesn't mean you're going to quote Bible verses all the time, but are our minds being saturated in God's Word so that what is being reflected in our lives is a Bible-saturated heart that's been shaped by the themes of God's Word and who God is? Where are you getting your intake? Because the servant of the Lord is taught by and speaks for the Lord, and that looks like attractive tenderness. But even attractive tenderness doesn't mean you're going to get a warm reception. I love the way one pastor put it. When you speak up for or reflect what the Bible says about, for example, sexual morality, you sound like a reactionary and an antiquated you know, Victorian or something. When you speak up for what the world says about economic and social equity and justice, you sound like a radical and you're going to make somebody unhappy no matter what you say, even if you say it with tender attractiveness. Maybe you've run into that. Maybe you've experienced speaking the truth in love graciously and still gotten rejection. Jesus knows what's that, what that's like because the servant is obedient to the Lord even to suffering. Did, did you hear that in verses 5 and 6? I was not rebellious. I, I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Does that sound familiar in terms of the Gospels and what Jesus experienced? 
I mean, Mark records after Jesus' arrest, the soldiers took him and they put a cloak on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they took a reed and they, they beat him with it and were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes on and led him out to be crucified. Jesus knows what that is like, shame and spitting and not turning away from bearing his back from beating. And it's a reminder that Jesus, Jesus has not yet come to rule and reign in glory and exercise his ultimate authority. One day he will judge all sin and evil, but Jesus has not come to conquer and overrule and force his way. And it's not just what he's done for us, it's the model for the servant of the Lord. I mean, the people in Isaiah's day were looking for some kind of a political or military solution. Where can we get the strength? Where can we fight back? Where can we, you know, express our power and dominate over others? And even Jesus' own disciples were looking for that from him, right? Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're, they're looking for him to drive out the Romans and, and make everything great again and, and conquer all their enemies. Jesus came to suffer for us and to show us what faithful obedience to the Father looks like. If they hated me, he said, they will hate you. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, I did not turn back, meaning I, I didn't run away when I could have from the beating, the mocking, the spitting. And, and this was the most offensive way that you could shame or dehumanize someone in that culture. Uh, to, to beat someone, to spit on them, was for criminals and fools who were, you know, almost like put in the public stocks to be ridiculed by everyone as they walked by and to pluck out the hairs of the beard. I mean, I, I can imagine what that would be like. Maybe Jesus should have just shaved. But in that culture, uh, to, to, to be beardless was shameful, and especially to have your beard ripped out was a sign that you were having your identity taken away. And it doesn't make sense not to strike back in those conditions, especially when you're innocent. And sometimes we suffer innocently, and sometimes we suffer justly because we've been part of the problem. But Jesus was the one true sufferer who did not strike back. And it doesn't make sense to us. It does not make sense to our flesh. And yet Jesus never gives us permission to hate our enemies. In fact, he tells us, love your enemies, pray for them, bless them, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who loves the righteous and the unrighteous. And my flesh wants to say, my sinful spirit wants to say, I don't want to forgive those people, Jesus. I'm not willing to turn the cheek towards those people. Not after what they said. They were rude and harsh and unkind to me, so I'm going to be rude and harsh and unkind to them. You get what you give. And I think the question that it comes out is, you know, in, in those moments when what comes out of me is fear or resentment or the desire for vengeance, it's probably a sign that I'm being discipled by someone other than Jesus. 
because that's not how Jesus responds. Or it's maybe a sign that, you know, I pay lip service to God's Word having authority in my life, but I really want to carve out parts where I say it doesn't apply. Uh, I don't want to forgive those people. I'll forgive the nice people who are nice to me, but I'm not going to forgive those people, or I'm not going to speak kindly to those people. It's sort of like saying, yeah, Jesus, I'm thankful that you died to save me, but I really know better than you in this part of my life. I, I don't want to follow you that way. We're kind of saying, I I want Jesus, but I reject what made Jesus, Jesus. Because what made him who he is was his submission to God and God's word and his willingness to obey in humble submission, even through suffering. One of the hardest parts to submit is when we're asked to follow this pattern of Jesus' life. What does faithfulness look like? It looks like humble submission because a servant is obedient to the Lord even to suffering. Faithfulness looks like humble submission to God and to his word. And maybe it's worth asking ourselves, where are the parts that maybe I've been tempted to carve out the things that Jesus says pretty clearly to me, but I just don't like because it's going to hurt. It's going to take away something that I want. It's going to keep me from getting something that I'd like to have. It's going to hold me back from doing something to somebody that I want to do. Jesus is faithful to help us be obedient to the Lord, even to suffering. Because faithfulness looks like humble obedience. And that's really hard. And it's good to know that we have a Savior that knows that. Because we probably all had that desire, that temptation to turn back from a, from a difficult path or a hard choice that God has in front of us. If I really follow you, Jesus, this is going to cost me something. This is going to hurt. It may cost me money. It may cost me social standing. It may cost me acceptance. It may cost me friends to stand up and be different. Where do we find the strength to to keep going in that? Well, the servant is helped and upheld by the Lord. That's the last section here in verse 7. The Lord God helps me, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. How can he say? I mean, he was just disgraced, but somehow he's not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Where is my adversary? The Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? All of them will wear out like a garment. Does that uh, setting my face like flint sound familiar too? There's an echo of this that Luke picks up in his gospel where it says, as the time for his ascension, for his returning to the Father drew near, Jesus set his face like flint. He set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to do what I was called to do. I'm going to follow God all the way to the end. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to turn aside, Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter who accuses me or, or what they throw at me because, did you, did you catch this? It will not stick. The one who vindicates me, the one who declares me righteous, the one who upholds my cause is with me. He will defend me. And, and 
to the point where the servant can even say, therefore, I've not been disgraced. Even with mocking and spitting and, and beating, that's not even a disgrace because it, it's unjust, it's wrong, and the Lord knows that I am just with him, that I have been declared right in what I have done. My identity, the servant is saying, is so rooted in who I am in God that nothing can break me, nothing can ultimately undo me. Not humiliation, not vilification, not ostracization, not rejection. Nothing will turn back the servant of the Lord because God is my vindication. God is my confidence. He is my identity. Who can declare me guilty in the, in the way that most matters? There's an echo here too. Did you catch it of what Paul writes in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn? Do you see the confidence and the strength that that brings? The servant is helped and upheld by the Lord. There's an unbending strength there that comes from knowing who he is in Christ, who he is in the Father's love. And again, that goes back to verse 4 and verse 5. How do I get this? Because morning by morning, the Lord awakens my ear to hear with the ear of a disciple. I, I am saturated and sustained and and grown and strengthened because of what God tells me through his word about who I am. I am a child of the living God. I am righteous. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am delighted in. And as I know that, that strengthens me. That begins to shape me. That begins to give me that confidence. That's what releases the power when I live out of what God says about me. What does the faithful serv servant look like? It's an unbending strength because I'm helped and upheld by the Lord. There's a humble submission and there's a, a gentle attractiveness. And all of us probably tend towards one of those or another. It's really rare to find them all in one person, right? Attractive tenderness, humble submission, unbending strength. That's what the faithful servant of the Lord looks like. But it's even more rare to find all of those things brought together and aimed in the right direction. Because we can even have those elements of God working through us and maybe be heading sideways somehow. Look at verses 10 and 11. The, the soliloquy ends and now the narrator steps back in. Maybe Isaiah, maybe the Lord himself speaking through Isaiah, obviously. Who among you fears Yahweh fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and the torches you've kindled. You will have this. You will lie down in torment. And what is that about? Here's what God is saying. He's saying, look, if you're in the dark, if you're wandering around, if you know things are a mess and, and you can't solve it, don't light your own fires. 
Stick with what I have told you. Follow the light that I have kindled for you. Follow the light that I have given you. Because when we say, you know, I'm not so sure what you're doing, God, and I don't think you know what I need here, that's lighting our own fires. You know, when you say, I, I know you've called me to forgive, and I just, I don't really think I want to forgive those people. We're lighting our own fires. That's the sin of our first parents, this determination to be self-sufficient, and it's what we get told over and over and over again by our culture. You decide what's right for you, and don't let anyone place any limitations on your absolute freedom in any way. That is lighting a torch that will lead us to lying down in torment. We will walk by the light of that fire until it consumes us. God, I don't need to be kind to those people. God, I don't need to, I don't need to persevere in this area. God, I don't, I don't believe that you can help me overcome this. That is the way of darkness and torment, God says. But thank God that Jesus is the faithful servant who has come to lead us into light and life through knowledge of the Father. He's the one who's obeyed in the places where we have failed. He is faithful in all the ways that we have turned to other directions. He is the one who has come to rescue and save us. See, we're, we're not Hamlet. We're, we're not burdened with some impossible, overwhelming, horrible task and turned, turmoiled inside and not knowing which way to turn. We're not left all on our own. We have a father who sustains and loves and cares for his servant who is able to love and sustain and care for his servants because that's what we are called to be. And, and as we meditate and live in the understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it gives us confidence. It makes us reflect his kindness. It, it makes us willing to follow him in humble submission. It makes us servants of the Lord. Let's live that out. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word and this invitation. Lord, all of us here need to hear this. All, all of us in this room, all of us watching online, this warning and this invitation. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have lit our own torches and walked in our own light. Oh, Father, help us to fear you and obey the voice of your servant. Thank you that Jesus is the faithful servant for all the ways that we have failed. And he has paid the price to reconcile and restore us and he lives to help us, to sustain us in our weariness. Oh, help us to trust and follow you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.